Yes. Good. Anybody else? That is what we spent most of our time on last time. Okay. So the ineffectiveness of the law... <clears throat> Uh, was was where we landed at the end of that. Um, that that uh, the law could not make him better. It only made him worse because of the presence of sin within him. This is something that I talked about on Sunday at Fremont Community was uh, because we're, we are in a series right now about the character of Jesus, like who is Jesus. And we went... Um, uh, to John chapter 1, uh, there's, there's a verse there in verse 14 that says, We have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we kind of delved into this question, what is grace and truth? And further down, it says, For through Moses came the law, but through Jesus came grace and truth. So that gives us a little bit of a grip on what he means when he's talking about grace and truth. He means it's not, he means something different from the law. That Moses brought the law and Jesus brought grace and truth. So it's not the same as the law and we can begin to contrast what Jesus brings when we hold it up against the law. Now, the law brings two, in, in, especially in Paul's writings, there's really two purposes for the law in the New Testament. The first purpose of the law is to, uh, to be the schoolmaster which leads us to Christ. I'm directly quoting Paul there, which means this is, the law is the thing which shows you how broken you are, which shows you how desperately in need of a savior you are. That's what the law is really good at. I've always loved using the illustration of the, uh, you know, the cartoon character at the front of the line for the roller coaster. You know, you have to be this tall to ride. Okay, that guy. Okay, and that guy is, uh, uh, he doesn't have favorites. He doesn't, and, and he can't help you if you don't match up to what he says you have to be. You're either tall enough or you're not tall enough. That guy can't make you taller, and that guy can't change how tall you need to be to get onto the roller coaster. Are you with me? Okay, the law is exactly that. The law is a standard. The law is a ruler. The law is a measurement. It's a thermometer. All it can do is tell you what's, what's true about you. That's all the law can do. The law can just be lined up next to you and say, nope, you're not perfect, as if we didn't know that already. But that's all the law can do. That's all the law is for. All the law is for is to make you aware of sin. 
It does not make you righteous. It cannot make you righteous. Can a ruler make you taller? <coughs> can a thermometer make it warmer? That's what the law is. It's the standard. It's a standard of measurement. Okay, that's number one. And number two is it is the negative image of God. Okay, when I say that, the Bible refers to the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, as shadows and types. Okay, shadows and types of what is true, of what we have received now in the New Testament. When I say that the law is the negative expression of the character and nature of God, what I'm saying is that the law is uh, is the shadow of God, okay? So, like, say I were to have a light right here, and I were to take a piece of paper, like a white piece of paper, and hold it up, and I put my hand in between the white piece of paper and, and the light. You would see on that piece of paper the shape of my hand, correct? Are you with me? Mm-hmm. You would see the shape of my hand. But then, if I just hold my hand up in front of you, okay, how much difference? How much difference is there between the substance of my hand and the shadow of my hand? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Quite a difference. Now you can learn some things about my hand by looking at the shadow, can't you? Oh, there's five fingers. Oh, it's a certain size, etc. You can learn some things about my hand by looking at the shadow. But you, but you can learn much more about my hand by actually looking at my hand. Correct? All right. So the law is the shadow of God. Okay, but in Jesus we have grace and truth. Let's start with truth. Jesus is the substance and not the shadow. Jesus is my hand, not the, not the shadow of my hand. The law is the shadow. Jesus is the substance. Jesus is truth. That's why truth comes with Jesus. Because the reality, the very substance of what God looks like, how God behaves, how God thinks, feels, and acts, the reality of God's personality was being lived out in front of us in the man Christ Jesus, who was, it was, truly, fully, 100% God. Here is God personally on display. The Bible calls him a couple things. It calls him the radiance of the glory of God. It calls him the exact representation of his nature. It says the, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. Okay, so we have in Jesus the living, active presence of the reality of the eternal God. Made flesh, incarnate. Okay, that's what that means, made flesh, incarnate. So Jesus is the truth, where the law is the description of the truth, and in fact, it's not even the full description of the truth, it's only the negative description of the truth. In other words, the law is me saying what God is not. You can learn a lot about something by telling people what it's not. Does that make sense? It's not this, it's not that, it's not this, it's not this. Okay, and that's what the law did, was God is not a thief, God is not a liar, God is not a killer. And I think it would be really, really interesting and important for you to think for a few minutes just about those simple statements, God is not a thief, God is not a liar, and God is not a killer, because the reality is 
some of us, in fact, most of us, believe that God has been all of those three things at some point, and we are incorrect. But we'll, we'll keep moving. Okay. We have all thought of God as taking things that were ours, have we not? What is a person that takes something that belongs to you? A thief. So you have thought of God as a thief. We have all thought that God said things to us that we then found out were not true. And what is someone who speaks something that is not true? A liar. Okay? And we have all thought that God kills. We all have. But God told us not to kill, and in doing so told us that he is not a killer. We need to pay attention to this. So there are a lot of things you can learn from just the shadow of, the, of, of a thing. You can learn what God is not, and I would definitely recommend it. But we can't know what God is in fullness until we actually see God. The law is the negative of God. It tells us what he is not, but it doesn't very well tell us what he is because the law does not tell us that God is love, but Jesus did. That is how Jesus is truth in comparison with the law that was brought by Moses. But how is Jesus grace? Okay? Jesus is grace because unlike a ruler, Jesus can make you taller. Unlike the guy at the, at the front of the roller coaster line, Jesus can say, you, you don't meet the standard, but I can help you grow. That cartoon guy cannot help you grow. All it can do is measure your growth. But Jesus helps you grow. Jesus causes you to grow. Jesus makes you better. Jesus transforms you into his image by the influence of the Holy Spirit over time and over the, you know, the, uh, and, and by being, uh, 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 by beholding the revelation of the face of God, we become more like God over time, okay? And so this, uh, Jesus can do that. The law cannot do that. By the way, if you are attempting to defeat sin via the law, you are being an idiot. It does not work, okay? How many times have we stood up against the ruler and tried to get the ruler to make me taller? The ruler gives you something to, to strive for. But that is not the same thing as giving you, ability, giving you the ability to become that height. I will never be six feet tall. It's not going to happen. I am finished growing this way. And hopefully I'm finished growing this way as well. I'm really working on that. I'm trying to grow the other way. <laughs> <laughs> what? It's like, don't speak that over me, man. Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm trying to. I am finished growing this way. You may not be, but if you're over 18 years of age, you probably are. Just FYI. I am never going to be taller than I am. That's reality. And the truth is, the older I get, probably I'm going to begin to lose some of my height. Okay? Because that's what happens. Your spine begins to compress. 
your bones begin to, anyway, but I won't lose a lot of it, but I will lose maybe a couple inches over my the next, you know, really 30, did. 40 years. She's so, fine too, like four, ten. Exactly. Four, ten. No, it happens. She's so small. <laughs> it happens, okay? However, Jesus could make me six foot if he wanted to. I don't think he wants to, but he could. He has that power, that ability, okay? Where a ruler which measures reality cannot change reality, Jesus is the changer of realities. He is the one who causes life and growth. He's the one who brings change, life to death. Jesus brings life to death. Light to darkness, that's what Jesus does. Life to that which can't, has no life in itself any longer. Jesus brings life. Does this make sense? Okay, so Jesus is the reality of God, and Jesus is also the power to, also brings the power to make us more like God, because grace is the posture of God towards all humanity at all times. See, grace existed in the Godhead before any human existed. Grace is not God's reaction to sin. Grace is that reality within God which makes sin powerless. Grace is the posture of God towards you which is love in action. Okay? The reality of God is he is love. And when he acts loving towards you, we call that grace. Are you with me? So that is Jesus. Jesus is the expression of the reality of God, both through action, which we call grace, and through revelation, which we call truth. Jesus brings grace and truth. That is why the law... Every time we try and count upon the law to save us, it fails. Because it's never what it was meant to do. It was never meant to save anyone. It was never made to make anyone righteous. It was only made to make us aware that we were not righteous and that we needed grace. That's what the law was for. And every time you read the law and go, man, I'm a horrible person. The law is doing exactly what it was meant to do. And when you try and take a ruler and smack it over the top of your head, hoping that somehow you'll get taller, it doesn't work. So when you take the law and you use that as like a sword against your sin, like, you know, I have this habit that I can't get away from. I have this, you know, uh, I lose my temper on a regular basis. Stop it. Stop losing your temper. I'm taking the ruler and I'm smacking myself in the head. This says you shouldn't lose your temper. Bad, bad. You know what that does? Nothing. In fact, it makes you worse. Because now not only are you still impatient, but now you're impatient with yourself. Yikes. And here's the problem. If the law ever did help us to get any better, which sometimes we seem to think it does, because what we do, this is so much fun, this is great, this is going to be good. What we'd love to do is pretend the law has made us better by jury-rigging our own pride to cause us to cease in a certain behavior. Okay? Now, I will use Timothy Keller's example because I haven't heard of a better one. He says that 
He will lie to people. The only reason he would lie to someone else is out of his own sense of pride. So if someone said to him, hey, did you remember that thing I asked you to do? If he did not remember the thing that he had, they had asked him to do, he is going to lie about it. Okay, He's going to say, oh, I'm sorry. No, I forgot. I, I, yeah, I, I remembered that and I did it. I just didn't bring it with me or whatever. Okay, He's going to fudge it. Right? Okay. And when he realizes, you know, I shouldn't do that. I really shouldn't do that. The law comes along. Here's the standard. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Okay? Deception is wrong. Here's the standard. Boom. All right? And he goes, ah, man, I, you know what? I'm not measuring up to the standard. Dang it. I need to change that. So because the law can't help him, what he's going to do is he's going to turn back to the very reason he lied in the first place, and he's going to use that impulse within him to cause him to stop lying now. So this is how that works. Are you with me right now? This is how that works. What would happen? Okay. Why, why did I lie to that person? Because I was trying to save face. It was out of my own pride. That's why I lied to that person. But with the problem with the law, because the law has no power to change me, I have to find some other power to change me. Okay. I have to find some other power to change me. So what do I do? Because I want to meet the standard. So what do I do? What I do is I go back to the very pride that caused me to lie in the first place, and I say, "What? how would they think of you if they discovered that you had lied to them? <laughs> right? Now, why did I lie to them in the first place? Because I was prideful. And how am I fighting... The, the, how am I fighting my lying <coughs> habit? With pride. Okay? Now, here's the problem. That might actually work. Okay? Because I'm a prideful person, when I use <laughs> pride to attack my own sinful behavior, it actually works. Okay? And here's the real problem. Not only am I going to stop lying, which is a good thing, but I'm also going to be proud of the fact that I stopped lying. Oh, no. So I have doubled down on my pride. I have fixed my lying problem, but my pride problem has become stronger than it ever was. I have strengthened my own pride. Now let's come at it from Jesus' perspective. Okay? I realize that I'm a liar, and I begin to go back to Jesus, and I say to him, you are not a liar. Jesus. I understand that. And I need your help to stop lying. So I have to deny my pride, first of all, by saying to Jesus, I am a liar and I'm sorry. Okay, that's where we begin. We begin with humiliation. We begin by undercutting the power of the lie. Okay, and the next thing I have to do is I have to say to Jesus, I have no ability to stop myself from doing this. I just cut, I just nailed the lie again. I mean, the pride again. I just, I just shot the pride again. And then I begin to speak with Jesus about what's really going on in me. Why did I really need to, why did I really feel like I needed to lie about this? And Jesus begins to speak towards my pride. And he begins to work on my pride by the power of the Holy Spirit and the revelation of God's word. And he begins to erode my need for self 
self-esteem. I hate, by the way, I think self-esteem is satanic, but it begins to erode my need for self-esteem because I can rely upon his esteem for me. I no longer need to protect my own pride because I have a God who loves me regardless. And all of a sudden, when I forget to do something and someone says to me, hey, did you remember that thing? I can say, oh, shoot, no, I'm sorry, I forgot. And whether or not they think of me in a bad way does not really matter to me anymore because Jesus loves me and I'm good. Do you see how that both got rid of my lying and my pride in one fell swoop? That's what it looks like to be changed by the power of Jesus and not by the power of the law. Are you in? Does it make sense? Does it sound like fun? No. Don't pretend it sounds like fun because we all have pride, right? Okay. So now let's go back. So the law is ineffective. <laughs> That's where they landed at the end of chapter 7. But there is therefore, verse 1, now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, the end of chapter 7 says, if I rely on the law, I am condemned because the law has no power to make me better. So if I rely on the law, I'm screwed. That's the end of chapter 7. You rely on the law and you're screwed. Sorry. <laughs> uh, oops. <laughs> Wish I could help you there. Can't. Rely on the law and you're screwed. But now there is no condemnation. No, remember that the word, what the word condemnation means. We talked about it last time. To be condemned is to be, uh, is that the future for you is destruction. When a building is condemned, that means it has a future of destruction. Okay, so you can, you can put the words in you're screwed, okay, in condemnation because that's really what it is, Okay. I know those are kind of harsh words, but I, I like the harshness of it. I do, because that's reality, okay? You, if you're relying upon the law to make you better, to bring you into the kingdom, to transform you into the, into the nature of the second person of the Trinity, you are screwed, okay? But, so let's, let's replace this word. There is therefore now no screwedness for those who are in Christ Jesus, <laughs> This is the New International Josh version. Um, <clears throat> when you're in, the law will screw you every time, but Jesus has not screwed you. Are you with me? The law will let you down, but Jesus will not let you down. Why? For, this is verse two, the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Okay, Jesus brings grace and truth. The spirit of life. In him was life and that life was the light of men. Or light and that light was the life of men. Sorry, backwards. 
In him was light, and that light was the life of men. The spirit of life, which comes in Jesus, the Holy Spirit himself, has been brought to you, and it has set you free from the law of sin and death. That old way that people thought was how you came to God, you have now been, okay, you no longer have to rely on that. You are no longer subject to it. You have an alternative. You have a different way. And it this different way has set you free from having to rely on the law, which would fail you every single time. Okay? Uh, has set you, uh, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by our flesh, could not do. Now, the other thing Paul said in the last chapter was, the problem with the law was not the law, the problem with the law was you. The standard is the standard, period. The problem is you don't live up to it, okay? So understand, the law is holy and good and right and awesome, and it does exactly what God created it to do. The problem is you can't live up to it. You don't measure up, period. This is reality. No, we, we have sin and death at work in our members. We can't live up to this law, to, to the standard. And so... The law was weakened by the flesh, and it could not do what the spirit of life can do. But God, so God did it. You couldn't do it, so God did it. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. All right. So now condemnation has been taken off of you and it's been put on this old system because guess what? Now... We exceed the righteousness of the, of the scribes and Pharisees. Why? Because we have the reality of Jesus living inside of us. I just posted this thing. I'm going to read it to you. Uh, it's from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. It's so good. Just, just, oh, just great. Okay. Our faith is not a matter of our hearing what Christ said long ago and, quote, trying to carry it out. Rather, the real Son of God is at your side. He is beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as himself. He is beginning, so to speak, to inject his kind of life and thought, his Zoe life, into you, beginning to turn the tin soldier into a live man. Is that good news? Okay, where the law, when the law was your partner, you lost every time, but you have a new partner. And his name is Jesus, and he is taking the very essence of who he is, and he is injecting it into you and forming you into his image, bringing life where there was death. That's what he's doing. That's why he became a man. He took on the fullness of what it was to be human and he healed it. I want you to think of it this way. Imagine you have a virus in your body which is going to kill you. The only prognosis is death. 
You are going to die from this disease. But what Jesus did was he took that disease into himself, into his own body. And his body had the ability to fight it off. So his body created antibodies which could defeat this virus. And now he is taking his own blood with full of antibodies that can kill the virus and injecting it into your body so that his life is released into you to the defeat of the virus we call sin. Does this make sense? That's just good stuff. Okay. What's that? Well, no kidding. I mean, think about it this way. Like, all of your blood drained out of your body and all his blood put in. <laughs> yeah, right? My youth pastor, when I was a kid, uh, he got up and he's like, I want to share some of my story. And he was talking about, like, you know, that when I was a certain age, it be, uh, the, the doctors told me that I had this, this, uh, this disease that was going to kill me. And, uh, and he's like, and... and uh, the only way that I could get, that I could survive was through a transplant. And I went in and, and, and there was a person who was willing to give me this, you know, the, the transplant that I needed. And so I went into the hospital and we performed the transplant procedure, but, and, and, and it was successful and I was able to live. But the person who gave me what I needed died because of what he did. And we're all like, and he was like, and that person's name was Jesus Christ. Oh, shoot. Oh, oh you got me. And I was just like, oh, I remember. I was like, I'm never going to forget this sermon because it was so real in that moment because you're like, oh, how must you feel, right? Like, then this person died and he survived and you're just like, oh, shoot. And then he was like, I, no, the reality is his name was Jesus. And thankfully he didn't stay dead. But he really did die so that I could live. And I was just like, I love you, Jesus. You're so awesome. Right? It's like, and you have the same sickness I did, but Jesus is here to give you the transplant you need so that you can live uh, an entirely new life. And it was just, it was great. And everybody came up crying to the altar. My youth pastor was a pretty bad pastor, but he was an amazing evangelist. I love him. I love him. I really do. And he knew how to get people saved. It was crazy. I mean, he knew how to create an environment where lost people were constantly coming to Christ all the time, whereas my senior year of high school, we regularly had 600 kids in our youth group. The problem is he didn't know how to disciple people, which is why, that the, which is why we didn't keep 600 kids in our youth group. And two years after that kind of peak, he ended up burning out and leaving because... Uh, he didn't know how to shepherd this flock that he had, and it killed him. He's with the Lord now, and he's amening me right now. I absolutely love him. I think about him all the time when I'm doing ministry. I think about him all the time. Whenever I think about how in the world can I get people saved, because I'm the, like the opposite. I'm much better pastor than I am evangelist. I'm a pretty bad evangelist, to be honest with you. I'm just not good at getting... At, at at getting people to make decisions for Jesus. I'm just not very good at it. I'm really not. My dad's the triple threat, you know. He can do both. But I'm just not. I'm just, I'm a, I'm a pretty good teacher, but I'm not a very good evangelist. 
And I don't know Pastor Rob well enough to know where he lands on that whole spectrum, but I think he's more like me than he is my dad, to be honest. He recommends, okay, so Jesus condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh. Now, the Apostle Paul is always doing this. He's always like, he's always like rabbit trailing. He does it constantly, which makes me feel better about my life. Um, But he's always rabbit trailing. And this is kind of a rabbit trail because it's not really in the flow of thought. Okay. It's just kind of an aside. He's like, oh, by the way, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set your mind on the flesh is death, but to set their mind, uh, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So he's starting to move back towards his primary thought. Because, but the idea is this, okay? And this is why he went down that rabbit trail. Because he's like, the only way the law could work is if flesh could obey the law. It, has, it doesn't have the spirit enlivening it. Are you with me? Okay, and he's saying, and if you set your minds on the things of the flesh, the carnal things, the things that are eventually going to die, you aren't going to be able to even work with the law to get any better. But if you begin to set your mind on the things of the spirit, not on what you and yourself can accomplish, but on what you in partnership with God can accomplish, then there is real life. And he said, the problem is the flesh is hostile towards God. The flesh wants to always say, I can do it. Isn't that how it is? Don't you want to believe in yourself that I can live up to that standard? How many times has the standard been put forward and you're like, I can do that? Come on now. Doesn't that happen every time? When somebody's like putting, like setting a bar, don't you want to like jump over it? The flesh has either one of two responses to when someone sets a bar, when somebody holds up a standard. It's either... You look at that standard and you say, never going to happen. And so you just say, forget it. I don't even care. I don't care about that standard. Your standard is stupid. I have my own standard right here. Right? Don't we do that? Come on. When you see somebody, like you're like, that's never going to happen. So forget it. So we either go to despair or we go to pride and say, I can do that. In fact, I can do better than that. Are you with me? Does this sound familiar? depending on what your personality is. See, I, I do not have a competitive personality. Just, I'm a nine on the Enneagram, and I'm, I'm just, I have no competitive drive whatsoever. Somebody's like, I can do this. I'm like, good for you. Just doesn't, I have no desire to, like, well, to be like, oh, yeah. No, that's just not in me. It just really isn't. It's not, it's not a boast. In fact, that can be really bad in some situations because I'm like, well, love, flippity die. Here we go. Like, you know, that's just, it's just reality. That's, you know, because I become cynical and then I go into despair and whatever. That's, that's the, that's the sin of the, the, the carnal, the, the, the primary sin of a nine on the Enneagram is laziness. 
it, it is. It's the primal sin because we're constantly going, I don't need to live up to a standard. I don't even care. That's 90-ness at its best. Okay, but... I lost my... I lost my place! Ah, oh, praise God. Hallelujah. Glory to Jesus. Okay. What? Yes, I know. I'm trying to find my place in the scripture, though. Okay, so... But either way, pride or or I don't care are both hostility towards God. Because that standard came from God. Okay, the, and the, the way it usually lives itself out, okay, is either rebellion. The human response to the law is either rebellion, which is the giving up, I don't care about your standard. I mean, you know, it's that whole thing you've seen on like uh, bumper stickers, you know, I, I reject your reality, your reality and I... Replace it with my own, that, that whole thing. Okay, um, that's rebellion. That's one way that we respond to the law. The other way we, we respond to the law is to use it as a ladder to climb up over other human beings and hurt them. To try and make ourselves better than other human beings. Oh, you have a standard? Allow me to use that as a staircase to climb so that I can show that I am better than everyone else that's around me. Thank you very much. It's the pharisaical way. It's the way of saying, thank you, God, that I'm not like that sinner over there. Right? Okay. Don't we do that all the time? We love to do that. It's a lot of fun for us. Let's continue. <clears throat> to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God because the only way to please God. I want to see if somebody will quote this verse for me. Without blank, it is impossible to please God. No. No. Faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And then it gives two things. It says, because the one who seeks God must believe that God exists and must believe that God actively rewards those who seek him. The place of faith is cooperation with God. That's what faith is. Faith is cooperation with God. Faith is saying, I see that what you're doing, God, and I want in. It's putting your money where your mouth is. In relationship to what God is doing, that's what faith is. Are you with me right now? Okay. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So those, and later on in Romans, it says anything that does not come from faith is sin, because that's reality. Anything that is outside of cooperation and trust in what God is doing right now is sin, period. If you're not doing it with God, you're doing it by yourself, and that's sinful. Everybody okay right now? You, however, Christians, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, capital S. The Spirit. That means the Holy Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. 
How many of you thought you got the Holy Spirit the day you got filled with the Holy Spirit and with the evidence of speaking in tongues? Anybody? And wrong. You had the Holy Spirit from the moment you began to believe in Jesus. Now, there is a difference between the life we live after we're saved and the life we live after we've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. There is a marked difference. But that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is not active in you. There's just a difference. And don't really ask me to explain that theologically because the Bible doesn't have a whole lot to say about it. But there was a marked difference between when Jesus stood in front of his disciples and breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, and they did. That is when they became Christians, was in that moment, post-resurrection, received the Spirit, whoa, they did, they became Christians. And it was, but then it was several, it was about a month later when they were all together in one place and they received the gift of the Father, which was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. People say that was the beginning of the church. And uh, I would say the beginning of the church actually happened the day that Jesus began his public ministry, but that's okay. You're going to tell me that those people that were following Jesus when he was actually physically on the earth were not Christians? Anyway, let's continue. But, okay, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. This is not just talking about after you die. Was I emphatic enough about that? We like to say, oh, look, see, isn't that nice? After I die, I'm going to rise from the dead. And that's absolutely true. You will. But if you really think that the spirit that's at work in you right now is not giving life to your mortal body in this moment, then you have misunderstood what Paul meant when he said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Because he's talking about the same thing. Different book, same idea. Now, the life we are living, the life that exists in and through this flesh of ours, is the, is the life we are living with and through the power of the Holy Spirit at work inside of us and out through us, including the defeat of sin in your life, <coughs> including being transformed into the image of Christ. Are you with me right now? You're not feeling very good, are you? We need to pray for her right now. Come on. This is our lab. Our demonstration. <laughs> eradicate the influence of uh, viral or bacterial infection. Lord, I pray right now that the life of the Spirit would be made manifest in her body. 
so that the uh, the end of the influence of death would come right now in this moment. Lord, that you would fill her with healing power that was paid for by the stripes on Jesus' back, but more as a manifestation of the love which you have had towards her from before the foundations of the earth. She is your daughter, and sickness and decay have no place in her. And I ask you, Holy Spirit, to bring faith, to bring the faith that we do not have, Lord, and to bring to manifest physical healing in her body right now in the name of Jesus so that she is feeling much better. In Jesus' name, Lord, I thank you for what you have done. I thank you for what you're doing right now. And Lord, I thank you for your healing power. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Feeling different? It's okay if the answer's no. We're not done. I didn't tell you you could sit down. There's not a change in symptom. Is there a, a witness of like just the presence of the Lord in a different way, or is everything to be checked? Okay. Well, then I believe God's at work. Amen. Let's have a seat. fighting a cold too and I've been you just look miserable sitting there <laughs> I was supposed to go home during prayer but I wanted to stay for this <laughs> oh you're sweet um, when you when, when compassion is stirred in you for someone don't ignore it okay some of Jesus greatest miracles happened right after you hear right after it says and Jesus was stirred with compassion for him. Then like crazy miracles happened to me. 
There's something about empathy and compassion which unlocks the miracle power of God. We don't really know how that works, okay? We just don't. Uh, it's, it's very mysterious, but I just, whenever my heart goes out to somebody and I was feeling bad for you, it, it's like God must want to do something, so let's do it. Uh, there's something that I, I, I heard the testimony of a guy who was a missionary and whatever, um, and he decided at some point that he was going to spend at least one second of every minute of his life turning his mind towards Christ, which I was like, yeah, right? Like ev- literally every minute of your day, kind of checking back with Jesus, high five, like, you know what I mean? Okay. And from the day he started doing that, everything changed for him. Like he was like, all of a sudden, I'm not doing anything. I'm just stepping into cooperation with what Jesus is doing at any given moment. He brings, he brings to my attention things that were right in front of my face that I didn't even recognize were there. And all of a sudden, now I'm in action doing something Jesus brought to my attention. And his, his uh, uh, power is there for me to do it. And I'm like, that sounds like a good idea. I think I'm going to try that. So I've been trying to, anytime I notice something, I'm not doing the every 60 seconds thing because I just don't, wouldn't even know how you do that. <laughs> you know, haven't, haven't you ever spent five minutes without recognizing there were five, five minutes had gone by? I don't know how you do that. I am trying to, anytime I kind of wake up to the fact that I'm not being present with Jesus, I'm trying to restore myself to being present with Jesus. It's the opposite of... Oh, Jesus, where'd you go? It isn't where did Jesus go, it's where did Josh go? Jesus is always there. My question is, am I paying attention? So anytime I recognize that I'm no longer paying attention to the movement of the Holy Spirit, I try and restore myself to attention to the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? So I'm trying to do that. I'm also trying to, anytime any kind of need is presented to me, I'm trying to just see if there's something I can do. In that moment, whether it's trash that's on the floor or like the panhandler on the corner or anytime I'm made aware of something that that where the kingdom needs to be made manifest, I am not anywhere on accident. Wherever I am, I am there because that's where God wants me. So if that's true and need is presented to me, isn't it probably also true that I should be the conduit of the kingdom in that moment, in that place? Doesn't that make sense? And I got to be honest, it is really difficult to live in that, in that reality. And I'm not really succeeding, but I'm doing better than I used to do walking around in a fog, just kind of thinking of my own thing, which is also very 90 of me. You guys are going to have to get familiar with the Enneagram because it's like part of my, like, my jargon now. Again, you know, there is, a, uh, there is an Enneagram conference coming up in, in uh, March 15th or something. It is 50 bucks a person, though, so we'll it might be, be a little bit out of your... Yeah, we'll be in. Oh, you're going to be gone. Well, never mind then. But it's going to be good, so... Maybe we can do a couple classes on the Enneagram before we're done this year. I mean, I, I think we read through the descriptions already once this year, but... So, all right, we're at verse 12. 
So God, uh, uh, verse 11, the spirit who dwells in you, who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. That is both an eschatological reality, like that is an end of time reality where we will all be raised from the dead, but it is also a present reality where God is currently right now in this moment by his Holy Spirit, which is currently right now in this moment dwelling inside of you, bringing life to your mortal body in this moment. Are you with me? Okay, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's a really good verse. I wish that's one of those. There's several verses in the Bible that I'm like, I need to tattoo that on my body somewhere. And the truth is my entire body would be covered with verses. So that's probably not going to happen. <laughs> I'm not going to get any more tattoos. I have one. I'm not going to get any more. I do. I'm not going to get any more. I just. No, I just don't. I just don't think I want any more. I I did. I wanted one. I don't. It is a. It's a Trinitarian symbol. It's right here. I don't think I could like uncover it very easily. But. Uh, and I, I really, really thought about there's another Trinitarian symbol that I saw recently by this artist. And it's like it has each member of the Trinity represented in a in a in a like a triangle. And they're each in one hand holding a cup and the other hand, they're pouring wine into the, uh, the cup of the other. And um, and it's just a really, really amazing image. And I was just like, oh, that's what I need to put on my other arm is is that picture of the Trinity. Uh, but I don't think I'm going to do it. <clears throat> Maybe I will. Who knows? But I doubt it. I've also thought about, because I never wear my wedding ring like, ever, ever, because I got too fat and it, and it didn't fit anymore. And I'm probably skinnier now. I mean, I know I'm skinnier now. I've lost 20-some pounds, but, um, but uh, I, don't, I haven't put it back on. I just don't like wearing rings. So I thought about getting a, like, Rachel's name tattooed right here. But... Uh, I haven't done that either. And I, I don't know if I will. I probably won't. If you want to talk about whether or not the Bible forbids tattoos, we can have that discussion oh sometime God. in the future. We can, have that, we can have that discussion sometime in the future. I'm not, I'm not interested in having it right now. Because, guys, if you really believe that, then you better not shave either. Because it's like the next line. I'm just saying. And you better not eat anything. No pigs. No uh, shellfish of any kind. No piercings. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Okay. Now, most of the time when we read this, we immediately think of putting to death the deeds of the body as... Like, you know, all those bad things my body wants to do that I should not do. And okay, but that's not what Paul's really saying. What Paul is saying is stop doing things according to the flesh, period. All things, anything. Live your entire life in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. Anything done in faith is sin. So 
Stop living your life according to the flesh wholesale and start living your life according to the spirit wholesale. Like your entire reality should be an outflow of the presence of the Holy Spirit within you, including when you're eating, drinking, sleeping, pooping, all of it filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. I know, right? You know, that's why, and, and this is one of the things that I say to couples that are going through premarital counseling with me, sex is an act of worship. Not you worshiping her or her worshiping you, but you together worshiping Jesus via this act, which might, and that might sound really like, what? Ew, no, gross. But that's exactly what it's supposed to be. Sex with the spirit. Sex in marriage is holy. And by the way, that's the only sex you should be having. Therefore, God created sex to be holy. And how disgusting is it that the enemy has made it something twisted and gross to even the point where many married couples have to walk, have to like work through their own guilt about having sex with their spouses because they have been told the lie that sex is disgusting and gross and it's not for, you know, we, oh, we can't talk about that. <laughs> I already see it on your faces right now, some of you. You have bought into the narrative of sex is gross. Here's the problem. Our country is split up into two groups of people. The people that believe that sex is gross and the people that believe that sex is God. By the way, it is neither of these. Sex is neither gross nor is it worth worship itself. It is an act of worship itself. It's like when music becomes what we worship. We do not worship music. Music is what we use to worship. It's the same thing. Are you with me? Mm -hmm. Have we been talking about sex long enough? Let's continue. Yeah. I would love to have a long discussion about Christian sexuality in this class. I think it would be really fun. It might make a lot of you extremely uncomfortable, which is why it would be so much fun for me. Uh, but I am not ashamed of, uh, of my sexuality. I'm a sexual being, and so are you. We were created as sexual beings, and we were created to express our sexuality in a specific context, a context I happen to exist in. None of you do, or, yeah, nobody in this room does, except for me. Isn't that exciting? And it's only when... It's only when we understand the context for which, for which sex was created that then gender becomes a powerful and holy thing as well. Because gender goes way beyond sexuality, but that's not what our culture tells us. The fact that you are male only has to do with your sexual behavior. Wrong, eh, not true, stupid. Because sex is a minute and ridiculously small part of life, even married life. And I just crushed some of your hopes, I know that. <laughs> but if you think about the amount of time that you actually spend engaged in, a, in that particular activity compared to the amount of time you spend engaged in every other activity of your life, you will realize just percentage-wise that it's extremely small, or it ought to be. Let's move on.
uh, well, I mean, some, some, especially, you know, like, like Christian guys are like, I know that sex is a no until I get married, but then once I get married, it's like, it's all I'm going to do all day long, every day. Woo. It's like, oh my God. (laughs) Marriage is not for sex. Sex is for marriage. And we need to recognize that. That marriage is much bigger and much more important than an expression of your horniness. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's continue. (laughs) Oh, yes. Absolutely. Again, I'm not ashamed of sexuality. I think it is an incredible, beautiful, amazing thing that God created. It is awesomely powerful. It really is. And I don't think marriage is possible without sexuality. I just don't. We're talking about two completely disparate human beings. And sometimes the only thing you can agree on is a physical expression of love towards each other. That is sometimes uh, when there aren't words to fix up. A, a rift, there are actions that fix a rift. It's reality. And you are a physical embodied creature. You cannot exist outside of your body because you're not supposed to. You are not a brain in a jar. You are a physical being. That's what you are. We are re-recognizing that. We knew that for a long time. The Enlightenment came along and took our brains out of our bodies and said, body bad, brain good, which is very wrong. And now, finally, we're beginning to put our brains back in our bodies and we're beginning to understand how much our bodies affect our brains. Let's keep going. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm so rabbit-trailed, it's not even funny. For all who led, who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. It is the Holy Spirit at work inside of you that is crying out, Abba, Father. It's the Holy Spirit at work inside of you that is crying out for knowledge of our Father. And Jesus said, this is eternal life, that you know the Father. So when Jesus says, I invite you to eternal life, what he's doing is inviting you into relationship with the one who created you. And does that begin when we die? No, it begins right now. We are in the midst of eternal life right in this moment. I'm going to read to you another thing I posted on Facebook today, which I didn't realize that all of this was going to be quite so uh, relevant when I posted these things. (coughs) But the Lord knew. uh, uh, This is Dallas Willard's, in his book, uh, uh, The Divine Conspiracy. This is his translation of John 3.16, and I think it is just... God's care for humanity was so great that he sent his unique son among us so that those who count on him might not lead a futile and failing existence, but have the undying life of God himself. 
How many of you have taken John 3.16 and made it into a passage about after you die? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. How many times have we made that verse about the after we die? It's not about after we die. It is, but not just. It's about right now, right here, today, this moment. You were perishing. Jesus has come to give you real life right here, right now. And that life is the knowledge of the Father. That life is cooperation with, partnership with, inter inter course with, we're going to use that word, we're going to use that word, uh, the Holy Spirit. It's not sexual intercourse. There's multiple kinds of intercourse. Uh, uh, <clears throat> conversation, by the way, is is called intercourse. I just wanted you to know that. That's what it's called. I know that we've changed the meaning of that word because anything having to do with sex is automatically ew, right? Okay, so. Oh, yeah. Over and over and over again. I mean, that's what culture does. Culture is constantly changing the meaning of words. That's not new. That's always been. That's always been the case. Doesn't the scripture technically make sense though, considering like biblically, like we're dying to our flesh and dying to self. Yeah. So like technically, like perish wouldn't necessarily mean physical death. It'd mean like our spiritual death. Well, this we were dying in our sin. We were dying in our flesh. And we were dying, and now Jesus has come along to give us life. Isn't that what Jesus said? I have come that you might have, and that more abundant. Jesus was serious about this, and he was not talking about just after you die. That we have so relegated Jesus to post-mortem existence. We have so relegated Jesus. I love the way that Jesus came to be the king of the world, and we have turned him into the minister of afterlife affairs. Okay, Ooh, that, that's, that's Brian Zond, that's not Josh Hawkins. But, but that is so good. Jesus came to be the king of the world, the right here, right now, today, this moment world, and we have turned him into the guy that makes sure we don't burn forever. We haven't made him the king of this moment. The example we follow every single moment of every single day, the one we're checking in with one second out of every 60. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the spirit of adoption has come and changed our opinion of God. God is not the punisher. God is the father. God is not our adversary. God is our father. God is not the tyrant. God is our daddy. That's what Abba means. In fact, Abba, it, daddy is too, uh, is too sophisticated for what Abba means. It's more like, you know, when little kids are going, da, 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 da. Which is like the first thing my kids ever said, which I always looked at Rachel and went, <laughs> right. They're probably just pronouncing a syllable. They probably don't mean me at all, but still, it made me feel good. It is the most infantile version of the name that we would give to our fathers. It's Abba, 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 Abba. It is the most primal, most first word come out of my mouth way of talking about my father. Abba. 
Daddy's too, too sophisticated. It's too mature. Abba is before that. Sometimes when, you know, you have those moments where it's hard to figure out where the Holy Spirit is, like what the Holy Spirit's at work doing, like how do I cooperate with the Holy Spirit in any moment? Like, you know, you come to the place and you're beginning to pray and immediately you're like, well, I feel nothing. Like, where is the Holy Spirit? One of the ways that I look for the influence of Spirit is I look for the cry of Abba in my own heart. What is, what is, at what place in my own emotionality am I most in need of being fathered? That's where the Holy Spirit's at work. I look for the places within me that feel the most insecure in this moment, that feel the most unsafe, that feel the most hurt, damaged, pain, because what I need is a protection of my daddy in that moment. And you know what that is? That's where the Holy Spirit's at work in you right now, is the part of you, the place in you that is crying out, Abba, that's where he is. Because this says he, the spirit of adoption, the Holy Spirit himself, is the one that stirs that cry in you. So when I'm not sure where the Holy Spirit is at work, I search for that cry inside of me. The Spirit himself, verse 16, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit raises up this cry of a need for Father, need for Abba, and in doing so testifies to us that we are his children. Because no kid that is not my kid has ever wanted, has ever come running to me for protection. Kids that are not my kids are afraid of me. Did you ever do that thing when you were a kid and you thought you were walking next to your dad or your mom and you look up and it's some stranger and you're like, ah, right? <laughs> Have you ever done that? Like, there's that like sense of security, like I'm walking next to a person who I'm connected to and then you look and it's someone else. Come on, that's happened to you, right? Like, that's has that ever happened? Haven't you done that, right? Okay. Because so <laughs> I remember those moments. Like, you just look where all of a sudden I'm like, who are you? I thought you were my dad. Oh my gosh. Like, it just freaked you out, right? What? Why? Why? But think about it. Why did that freak you out? Because it's not your dad. Okay? So recognizing that we're comforted by the presence of the Father is a testimony to the fact that he is our Father. Recognizing that we desire the presence and activity of the Father is a testimony to the fact that he is our Father. The fact that we sing, you're a good, good father, it's who you are, and I'm loved by you, that's who I am. And something happens on the inside of you when you sing that, even if you're sick to death of that song, and a lot of us are, there's still something about that chorus that made it the song that it was, because we were resonating with the cry of Abba that exists on the inside of us, which is both a legitimate cry that, that is expressing a need that we have on the inside and a reassurance and a testimony to us that indeed 
He is our Father. And if He is our Father, then that means something, which is what verse 17 says. And if we are His children, then we are heirs. We will inherit heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Because when I, when I recognize that I am a son of the Father, I also recognize that Jesus is my brother. The spirit of adoption at work on the inside of me. So the spirit is resonating inside of me. You are his child. And you are his brother. In that moment, the Trinity is at work on the inside of me. I am a son of the Father. I am a brother of Jesus. I am filled with the Holy Spirit. It's good stuff, my friends. Provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Okay, what does that have to do with anything? Understand. When we become a part of the family, we are included in the family business. Okay? If you walk into a business that you don't own and you see the business is not doing well, what do you care? But if you walk into a business that belongs to you or belongs to your dad... I am so excited about Pastor Rob and Rhonda who have just been voted in as the pastors of this church. I love them with all of my heart, but I am not going to lie. Sunday night was at least wistful for me because my dad has been pastor at this church for over 40 years and I grew up here and this has been something he's invested his blood, sweat, and tears into for his entire adult life and to see that 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 his position here is shifting I know it's a good thing but there is some grieving going on in my heart and in his not that there's anything bad happening it is the right thing at the right time this is God's moment and Rob is God's man I have no question about any of that in my mind or in my heart. But that doesn't mean that this isn't hard. It is. And I myself was on staff here for seven years. I still often refer to what's going on here as something that I'm a part of. Because it's the family business, right? Like, it's something that means a lot to my dad, so it means a lot to me. So when it says, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified him, what it means is that everything that touches Jesus touches us. And when Jesus suffers, not just on the cross, but in what he's doing right now, we've got to understand, we've got to understand, oh, this is such a big deal. And we only have 19 minutes. The most powerful picture 
of the nature of Jesus, and therefore the nature of the Father was Jesus on the cross. And if you think the suffering of Jesus was over after he died on the cross and was resurrected from the dead, then you do not understand the nature of God the Father. And if you think the suffering of Jesus began when he got nailed to the cross, then you do not understand the nature of God the Father because this is what God does. Suffering is the family business. Because where there are humans suffering, God is suffering with them. Even and especially where it was their own foolish choices and rebellion that caused them to suffer, do you think that he doesn't suffer? He does. I think we've often had this picture of God as kind of laughing at the suffering of those who rebelled against him, but that is not who he is. Like God points at the people burning in hell and says, I gave you a chance, sucker! That is not, that is not who he is. Where there are human beings suffering, <laughs> our God is suffering with them. That is who he is. That is what he does. That is what he has always done. And that is what he will always do, which is why God is in the business of making all things new because he suffers with us. And he is not, he is not sitting off in some ivory tower going, boy, that's just too bad. And any place that we as a church see suffering going on and we are not moved with the compassion of Christ, we have left Jesus behind. And I don't care what the purpose for that suffering was. It doesn't matter what the purpose for that suffering is. It's still suffering. And Jesus' desire and design is to bring life and alleviation to that suffering. Now, not in a way that's going to do people harm. Because there's two ways to bring an end to suffering. There's death and there's healing. <laughs> I want to ask you a question. Why is addiction sinful? Sure. Okay. I mean, that's true. But there is something deeper. See, the reality is... <laughs> Do you really think that God's worried about, do, do you think it's important to God that, like, we, like, well, you don't think enough of me. Is that why God's mad about us worshiping idols? Absolutely. What does addiction do? And what's the end of addiction? Death. You see, God's mad at people worshiping idols, not because, hey, that's worship I deserve. That's not why God's mad at people worshiping idols. God's mad at people worshiping idols because when you worship an idol, all you get is an idol. But when you worship God, you get God. 
He's mad not because it's bad for him. It's not bad for him. God could care less. God was totally fine before he ever created any of you. God is not affected by your worship of an idol. It's not like, oh, my worship numbers are down. I need to get out there and get to... That is not what's going on. Worship of anything other than God is destructive to the human existence, which is why God absolutely says, do not worship anything but me. It isn't because he's worried about himself. It's because he's worried about you. Are you with me? <coughs> but let me help you explore this even deeper because this is, what, this is where addiction comes from. The problem is suffering. That's the problem. Pain, right? Pain and suffering is the problem. And there are two answers to pain and suffering. Death and healing. Okay? Two answers. They both will end suffering ultimately. But one ends suffering sooner. Which one is it? Death. So is our goal actually the end of suffering is our, or is our goal health? Are you with me? Because when we want an immediate answer to the end of suffering, we're going to choose the easiest path, which is death. Death and numbness are the same thing. And when we choose numbness, we choose death. Because they are synonymous. Numbness and death are synonymous. They're the same thing. They're both an end of life, an end of sensation, an end of activity, engagement, and reality. <laughs> but if I break my leg today, and then I'm like, uh, well, I know it's really going to hurt for the doctor to set my leg, and then there's going to be weeks and weeks of it wrapped in a cast, which is going to be very difficult. I don't really feel like doing that, even though that's the only way I'm ever going to have full use of my leg again. Even though that's the only way I'm going to avoid getting gangrene and having to have my leg removed. But it's not going to end my suffering very quickly. So I'll tell you what I am going to do is I'm just going to shoot my leg full of Novocaine so that I can't feel a thing and I'm just going to keep walking. But what happens? That is going to kill me. It feels a lot better, a lot quicker, but it's going to kill me. Does this make sense? Addiction is a sin because it leads, because it is choosing death and not life. That's why it's a sin. Okay, we have got to get out of our heads that there is a list of rules that God is like, if you break these rules, I'm going to burn you. That is not the point of the rules that God gave us in the first place. That is not what it's for. What it's for, the whole idea of things God doesn't want you to do, is that God says these things are damaging to you, so don't do them. It's like every rule a parent has ever made. Do not play in the street. Why? Because you're going to get hit by a car. It's not because I don't like it when my children are in the street. It's not that. It's, it's nothing to do with that. It has to do with the simple matter of the street is a dangerous place. Although my grandpa repeatedly as a child told me, go play in traffic. <laughs> he was kidding. I think. 
Does this make sense? Okay, now back to this. So why does it say we have to suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him? Because to be tied up with Jesus is to be tied up with his purpose. To be tied up with Jesus, to be unified with Jesus is to take on what he loves, what he cares for, what he's about. And therefore we will suffer because we're going to be standing with the suffering. Because we will put ourselves in between pain and destruction and those that it is pursuing. And the Apostle Paul is saying, if you are in line and aligned with Jesus, you're going to find yourself where Jesus found himself, which is hanging on a cross. But just as Jesus suffering in the place of another brought glory to himself, so you suffering in the place of another will glorify you because you're going to be reflecting the God who saved you. Does this make sense? We're choosing health and not death. And healing can really hurt. Not just for you, but for those that you encounter. Does this make sense? And then he goes on. We have no time for this, but we're going to go into it anyway. Verse 18. Four. Ready? This, this, <laughs> this verse has been my lifeboat I don't know how many times. And some of the hardest times in my life and some of the times in my life that were the most confusing, the most upsetting, the most difficult, I would come back to Romans 8.18. For I consider that the, pre- that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. To us is a bad translation. In us, through us. The original Greek is more amorphous than that. It's, it, it encompasses more than just to you. God's not just going to show things to you. He's going to show things to you, and he's going to show things through you. Okay. Suffering at this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in and through you. Oh, that's just good stuff. In the darkest moment of my life to date, okay? The most difficult, most confusing, most upsetting time of my life to date. I had eight different things that were all going as wrong as they could go, including my wife had a miscarriage. We'd been trying to have a baby for three years. She got pregnant. We were excited. It was an awesome moment. And then she lost the pregnancy. It was one of the biggest nut punches I've ever had in my life. It hurt. And it made me go, who are you? And what do you think you're doing? And this makes no sense. And how dare you taunt us with this possibility and then rip it away? You sick, twisted jerk. That's, that was the way I talked to God. I mean, it really was because I was so angry. And there were eight, there were seriously seven other things besides that, which felt like, felt the same way, like this gigantic betrayal of God. Like he had led me down some primrose path and then said, nope, <laughs> that's what it felt like really did. There was job opportunities. There were ministry opportunities. There was like a bunch of things that all at once just got pulled away. Like, nope, you don't get them. And I was so mad. And I was so, I mean, I seriously considered just walking out. I'm done. Do you know what God's word to me in that moment was? 
We eventually got back to verse 18. I consider the sufferings of the present time not worth comparing with it. And I said, why would you do this to me? And God put his big finger right in my face. And he said to me, because your destiny is not worth your comfort. Well, that's backwards. I am comfort today is not as important as the destiny I have for you. The way you feel right now, there will be a day when you look back and you say, worth it because of what it did in you. You will see that I was at work. You will see that I was doing what I had always promised I was doing. You will see that this moment was worth it because you have a destiny in front of you. And I said, you're a jerk. Don't promise me things. (laughs) But I knew. Today's discomfort is worth tomorrow's destiny. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in and through me. That's it for today. We'll pick up on verse 19 next time.